Peace. This is where my journey in Fellowship Presbytery actually began uh, about two and a half years ago. We flew down from a snow flurry Chicago uh, down here to meet with people in the Presbytery in this very building. I stood right here. I can say without a doubt, it is a greater joy to be here to open God's Word with you today. Today we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 10. It is not only because I am preaching through Luke, but also because it is a wonderful tie-in to thinking about missions and reaching other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, there are few times, I think, especially over the last year, that we have felt a sense of urgency. As If anything, this last year has created more space, more time uh, than we have had. But for about 10 years, my wife and I and my family lived down in southeast Florida, right on the Atlantic Ocean. And there was something that could always make you feel a sense of urgency, and that was an approaching hurricane. While we think of hurricanes as sort of a large amount of rain in a short amount of time, if you were where I lived, where we were hit with four direct hits from Category 3 and above hurricanes, it is something different altogether. It is life and property destruction. And so if you live in Southeast Florida, you are very good at reading hurricane tracking maps. You are very good at knowing which websites have the best predictions of which direction it will go. You are very good at getting to the grocery store before all the eggs and milk and bread is gone. And you are very good at getting out of town before the highway is completely jammed with people who waited till the last moment. And if you don't prepare... And if you are not ready, do you know that right before a storm, if it's about to hit your town, they drive up and down the streets of the neighborhoods and highway patrol and sheriff's patrol cars on the loudspeaker saying, you need to evacuate. Why all this urgency? Because whether you're paying attention to it or not, the hurricane means something very significant for you if you live in its path. Now, as we look at this text today, I want us to hear the reasons for urgency in thinking about the kingdom of uh, God that is coming. I want us to think about how privileged and how joyful we should be because of where we are in the midst of this coming kingdom. So listen as I read the first 24 verses of Luke chapter 10. This is God's word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages." 
Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Thus ends the reading of our text. When we study God's word, we recognize our need for God's help so that we might uh, be benefited uh, from it. Let's pray even now and ask for that. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that in your grace that you have given us your word. You have given us this word that we read. And even more so, you have given us the word, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, may we listen to him even now. May you give the one who listens Uh, the help from the Spirit to hear, believe, and be changed by your Word. And I pray, O Lord, for me who preaches your Word, that you will use me as a conduit of your grace, that you will speak through me to your people today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I know this is a long text, but it is one section in uh, Luke chapter 10. And in it, we see a story that is unique to the Gospel of Luke. And that is the sending out 
of 72 people to go before Jesus to prepare for his future missionary endeavors. Now, uh, in some translations, you may have one that says 70, and uh, the tradition is actually mixed about whether it's 70 or 72, but the point is, it's a number far greater than the 12 apostles. And so here, Jesus sends out a greater number of people into uh, the part of Israel that he is journeying into. Why is it that now this group is expanding? Why is Jesus now sending out so many people in preparation for his coming ministry? ministry was because we saw in the previous chapter, or you can read in the previous chapter, that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, this is the beginning of the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And Jesus understands that there is a need for urgency to tell people about the kingdom of God that is near. Why is it near? Because Jesus Christ is near. And he is the coming of God's kingdom in this world. And so these 70 go out. And we can hear in Jesus' instruction the urgency of this kingdom nearness. Now, when you're in a hurry, what is your first instinct? Well, if you're anything like me, my first instinct when I feel a great sense of urgency is to start doing You know, I start thinking, well, I'm going to write a list, and then I'm going to uh, go out on Amazon and buy all the equipment that I need, and then I'm going to get out there and do stuff. But notice the first step of this urgent mission is Jesus instructs these 72 to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. What a beautiful description for God the Father. The Lord of the harvest to send out workers into this ready harvest What is he saying is the first and most essential step, even when time is essential, is to pray. Why? One, so that their ministry will be effective. We can certainly read it that way since this is the first instruction that Jesus gives. That prayer is the first step in your ministry. Pray that God will use you in this mission. But I want us to understand in this context that this prayer is not just for the the 72 workers that Jesus is sending in this text, but is a prayer for the multiplication of workers as they go out. Jesus' goal is that God will provide many, many, many people who hear about the good news of Jesus and tell others about it. Do you know that that's still a great prayer to pray? that God will send out workers into the harvest. I know it may seem around us, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, uh, in our nation and world, that the harvest is not right, but it is. There is more need. There is more questioning about our meaning and our significance. There is more confusion about who humanity is made to be and what it is made to do than there has ever been. And the harvest is great for us to go and tell the story about why God created humanity and what he has prepared for humanity in the future and how we can know that through the message of Jesus Christ. So pray that the Lord will send out workers into the harvest. Secondly, we see there is urgency because in his description in verse 4, he tells them to pack lightly. Notice he gives a list of things not to take. Now, I have to think about this because I grew up with a mother who cannot go on an overnight trip without three bags. 
uh, it, really, it really makes me laugh. She'll come to my house for a weekend. I look in the back of the trunk, and there are three giant suitcases in the back. And I say, why in the world would you need three giant suitcases in the back? You're only going to be here for a night. She says, well, I have no idea what I might need to wear. And so I think she brought her whole closet. But this is not what Jesus wants them to do. Notice verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Jesus is saying you need to be like an arrow shot from a bow, straight to the target of these towns that I am sending you to to proclaim the gospel. Now, I am a very relational person, so this idea of not greeting people on the road sounds unfriendly, unsouthern inappropriate, but let me tell you, it's because they're in a hurry. They don't have time for the passing of the time. They are urgent because the need of the kingdom is so important. Thirdly, we see that they are proclaiming the kingdom. We see that in several ways. They proclaim the kingdom even when they first encounter uh, the people that they come in contact with. We see that in verse 5 and 6. It says, the first thing you do is you offer peace to a home that you come to. Now, when we think of that word peace, we think of a cessation to hostility, but that's not the Jewish understanding of peace. The Jewish understanding of peace is what we understand of shalom, which is well-being, an overall well-being with you and with you and God. In other words, that things are right in your world and in your family. And so he says it begins by offering peace, shalom, to the house in which you enter. And if there is someone who desires peace, they will receive you. This is what Jesus says. And that peace, that well-being will rest upon that house. Why? Because the message of the nearness of the kingdom has come. That's part of that proclamation. Another aspect of that proclamation that they are to give is that they do it in power. We see in verse 9 that as they proclaim the kingdom, Jesus says, you will heal people. Now, we see in the disciples' return later in the text that that healing, including casting out demons, that is, they resolve the fallness, if you will, the brokenness, the sinfulness, uh, the effects of the fall in the people they communicate with to show the truthfulness of the message of the nearness of the kingdom. You see, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, these marvelous works of power were a way of authenticating the truth, the veracity of what the disciples were saying. And so here, Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, gives them the ability to heal and to cast out demons in his name. Now, I know some may say, wouldn't that be great to have today? Wouldn't people listen to us? Do you know, in many ways, we have something far greater than the ability to do those wonderful acts, and that is that we have this whole book full of the marvelous acts of God, showing the infinite power of God working through Jesus Christ that we can read and study and share together. And so we have the opportunity to bring uh, the message of the kingdom of God with the power of God through the study of his word. But I want us to notice that in this proclamation, it doesn't end when someone rejects the kingdom. I think too often in our attempts to share the good news with people around us, whether we're doing it personally or in a group or as a church planner or as a missionary, that we are often really deflated 
when we face rejection. Why? Because we take it personally. We take it personally. And we feel like, well, that's the end of that. And you know that in our world today, we actually live under the delusion that when we decide something is not true or that we don't accept it, that it simply ceases to have a a sort of an existence or some sort of connection to our life. But do you notice what Jesus tells these people to do? That even when you're rejected, you still proclaim the kingdom of God. What do they do? They do this very unusual thing to us. We wouldn't think about doing it. Uh, It says that you shake the dust off. And notice in uh, verse 10 and 11 that it says, whenever you enter town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. What are they saying in this shaking of the dust? Is it just spring cleaning? Is it just making sure that, uh, you know, their clothes look nice and pristine like we want our clothes to look maybe on a Sunday morning? No. This was actually a very strong statement. You see, when Israelites would travel outside of the nation of Israel, when they would enter back into the nation of Israel, they would actually shake the dust of all of those non-Israelite lands off of their clothes before they came into this holy nation of Israel. It was a way of saying, shaking the dust off was a way of saying you are acting as people who are outside the people of God. It was a very, very strong statement. And the word here talking about going into the streets is talking about going into the main road. Here it would be 321. Go out in the middle of 321 and say, you've rejected it. I'm shaking the dust off. I'm moving on. But I love what he says. But you tell them. The kingdom of God is still near. Just because you've turned a blind eye or grown a hard heart doesn't mean that God's kingdom isn't near. As a matter of fact, we see the urgency of this expression in the next part of the passage, don't we? In verse 12 through 15, we see that rejecting the news of the kingdom comes with severe consequences. Now, we live in a world that hates consequences, (laughs) Isn't that right? You know, we really do. We don't like consequences. You know, we get to the end of the movie and we say, well, they, you know, they they burned that whole village, but they're really okay. I mean, we just live in this world where there are no consequences. But here Jesus says that rejecting the message of the kingdom comes with consequences. Notice uh, what uh, we read here. It says, I tell you, verse 12, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. In other words, Jesus says, when the kingdom comes in its consummated form, at the end of all time and all humanity stands before God, it will be better for Sodom, the most notoriously wicked city in the Old Testament, than for a town that rejected the good news of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's such an astounding, privileged declaration to have the kingdom of heaven in Christ so near and to yet turn away. And to reiterate this, he goes even further into these woes. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Later, he mentions Capernaum. These are three areas in the area of Galilee where Jesus spent most of his time, where he did most of his teaching, where he did most of his miracles. 
And he's saying those people who rejected with all of that light will unfortunately be in darkness for all eternity. And their fate will be worse than the most notorious cities, Tyre and Sidon, who he mentions here. Their fate will be worse. Why? Because the more we hear, the more we're accountable for. Now, I want to stop for a second. We're going through this text quickly because it's a big text. But we need to think about that, sitting here in a gathering of God's people as a church. Do you know that people can sit in a church service week after week, month after month, year after year, and hear the word of God preached, and hear it sung, and hear the prayers, and still have a hard heart against the person and work of Jesus Christ. We still resist. We say, maybe later. Hear this word. I'm not, I'm a, I'm a guest preacher, so I, I theoretically can say whatever I want, but that is risky business. Because the more light that God shows me through the truth of the gospel, the more accountable I will be before him. And I can tell you in this church, you have heard the word of God preached rightly. What do you do with that? Does it humble us? Does it cause us to confess our need for God and be honest about our sins before him? Does it cause us in great joy to embrace the good news that Jesus Christ, God became flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin and rebellion against God. And he rose from the dead to show that he had fully not only paid the price for sin, but conquered the grave and hell itself. And that he offers new life if you would but believe in him. Belief. Belief. And do not fall into this category of, whoa, why is this so serious? I mean, if there is anything that we like less than consequence, it's talking about things like judgment, right? I mean, the world in which we live hates this idea that there is eternal judgment. But why would there be eternal judgment? Because notice what Jesus says in verse 16. This is urgent. Because rejecting the message of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ is rejecting Jesus. Notice that's what he says in verse 16. Verse 16, he says, The one who hears you, in other words, the proclaimer of this news that I am sending you out to tell, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Do you see this logic? I know you may not think about this week in and week out, but when Wallace or Dave stand here and preach, the, or whoever else may be standing in this pulpit, preach the word of God to you, to ignore it, to reject it, to not listen to it, is to not listen to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Isn't that profound? To be honest, as someone who preaches God's word, it shakes me down to the core. It really does. But he says, you're not being rejected. I'm being rejected. And when Jesus is rejected, he says, God is rejected. And so no wonder. Imagine, if you will, the scene at the end of time when we stand uh, before God and he were to say, listen, you know, how did you receive the message of the nearness of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ? And we say, well, I didn't pay attention to that, but now that I'm here, uh, you know, I, I'd like the best 
you know, best result possible. And he says, no, your whole life you've chosen to reject me. And so I'm going to let you have that for all of eternity. You won't have me. You won't have any light of my grace or love. That's why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. We don't want to waste time. We don't want to treat this lightly. There is an urgency to this. Secondly, though, I want us to look at the next part of the passage. I want us to look at the true acme of joy. In verse 17 through 22, uh, we see this in a beautiful way. The disciples come back, uh, those that he sent out. And can you imagine the excitement? You get sent out on this mission. It has to be scary. Jesus says he's sending them out like lambs among wolves, and yet they see God work in power, and they come back all excited. Notice what they say when they come back. Uh, They return saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, I have adult children, but there were times my own kids did not submit to me. You know, I, I... I can't even imagine the forces of evil submitting to these people in Jesus' name because they were ministering under his authority. And for his sake, the demons even submitted uh, to them. And they're excited about it, right? And I love it. Jesus joins in their joy. He says something that is so wild and so cosmic that if we let it, it will blow our minds. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? Well, here he is probably echoing the language uh, from Isaiah and Ezekiel that talks about those that put themselves up as great and equal with God, how God brings them down like lightning. But here he says it's Satan, the great enemy of the people of God, he saws, he sees fall like lightning. What does that mean? It means that with the coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, Satan's dominion has been broken. That it's the beginning of the end. It is often said about the cross that uh, in terms of eternal uh, reality, that that is spiritual D-Day. And that when Jesus returns, it will be V-Day. In other words, D-Day is when uh, the Allied forces in World War II stormed the beaches of Normandy. And it was not the end of World War II, but it was the beginning of the end. What Jesus is saying is my ministry here and the proclamation of my kingdom uh, in my coming is the beginning of the end for Satan. I've seen him fall from heaven. Oh, what a glorious truth. The truth we need to be joyful about that we serve a king in Jesus who is not in competition in some sort of dualistic struggle with Satan, but he is the conqueror, the one with dominion even over Satan. As his kingdom grows, the dominion of our enemy continues to shrink, and one day it will be eliminated altogether when Jesus uh, returns But notice what he says. He says, there is something even more exciting than that for you. Verse 20, notice what he says. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in them that this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's almost hard to fathom, isn't it? 
they've had the most extraordinary missionary experience you could ever ask for. They've seen the spirits obey them in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, that's nothing. That's really what Jesus is saying. He's saying that, okay, okay, but that's nothing in comparison to something that should fill you with a greater joy, and that is that you are known by God. Your name is written in the annals of heaven. God knows you and loves you and will never forget you, and that should fill you with joy. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, when is the last time that you have meditated on the truth that God knows me and loves me through Jesus Christ. And he will never forget me. That is a cause of great joy. If you haven't done it in a while, I encourage this. It's just part of my spiritual rhythm in my prayer life uh, and in my meditation life. I try to go back and remember the time in my life when God made himself real to me. And I go back and I pray through that, thanking God for every single element that ended up enabling me to see the beauty and power of Jesus Christ and to be drawn by him. I thank him for his grace and in enabling me to love him and embrace him. And I am always encouraged at the joy that God gives that he has included me in his eternal family. He says, this is a great joy. And I want you to notice that we see something here you will not see anywhere else. I know that you're going to say, really, are you exaggerating? No, according to those that I've read and looking around to make sure that this is right, uh, this is a time in which we see Jesus rejoicing in a higher way than we see him in all of the Gospels. Notice the language here. It's really very strong in verse 21. In that same hour, he, that's Jesus, rejoiced on the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He is rejoicing through the power of the Spirit at the amazing nature of God's grace. We've heard it sung, such a, such a wonderful song that means so much to all of us, amazing grace already in this service. Jesus is singing amazing grace through the power of the Spirit to God. He's saying, it is so wonderful that you have chosen the weak and what seems to be the foolish, to borrow language from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to show your amazing grace. Do you know this is the way God always acts? When he talks about the choosing of Israel earlier in the Old Testament, he says, I chose you not because you were the greatest or you the mightiest, but I chose you because you were insignificant. Why? Because God shows the immensity of his grace and showing his favor to little people like me and like you. Jesus has joy over this because he has joy in the unmerited favor of God the Father. And this is a great encouragement. I want us to jump lastly as we finish uh, to this privileged perspective. Verse 23 through 24. I hope that uh, you will uh, walk out of here feeling encouraged by these last two verses. In verse 23 and 24, Jesus turns to just his disciples And he wants them to know something about the specialness 
of what's happening. Do you know that as a, a credit card holder, I have a Chase credit card or did in the past, and they would send me emails all the time to tell me about these wonderful opportunities I have as a Chase credit card holder. I can get backstage you know, access at concerts, and I can go on these special trips. They still cost a fortune, but I had access to them, and I thought, wow, I don't know that that makes me feel special. A, it costs a lot of money to do this, and B, me and 40 million other people who have a Chase credit card all have the same access. But here, listen to what, uh, to what Jesus says. He says that you have an amazing blessing. Notice, he says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Why are they blessed? Listen to why. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What is he saying? We love the Old Testament. He's saying that everybody who lived in the times of the Old Testament, who longed for the redemption that God would bring, from the time of Adam and Eve themselves, who were promised a a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent and name their first child. If you go back and look at that story, Eve, when they uh, had their first child, says, here is the man. In other words, thinking that this was the answer to the redemption that they longed for since the beginning of humanity The people who have been faithful to God have longed to see God's redemption. His power over evil and the the effects of evil in this world. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you have seen it. You have seen it. What the whole world has longed to see, you have seen. The apostle Peter picks up on this theme in 1 Peter Uh, Chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, there he writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Wow. I bet when we open our Bible, we don't think about it that way. I bet we don't think when we open the New Testament, we think, wow, angels long to look at the truths that are revealed here in this word. What a gift to be given this revelation. And we, like those disciples that Jesus turned to, have been given a privileged perspective. Why? Because we know the whole story. We know the story that God is not just going to send a Redeemer, but that He has sent a Redeemer, the man Jesus Christ. And that He has given us the opportunity to be in relationship with Him through faith by receiving the gift that Jesus offers in His life, death, and resurrection if we will confess and embrace this gift that he offers to us by faith, this is something we can see written. And you know what? We can share with our children. And we can share with our grandchildren. And we can share with our neighbors and our community and our nation and our world. We can share. And this is a privilege to open this book and read this story 
And to see the work of God is a privilege. When you leave here today, you may not have considered it a privilege to hear some bald man come and preach the Bible to you today, but I hope you walk out saying, I am privileged to know the story of God's saving work in this world and in my life. It is a privilege and a joy. And may that privilege and joy lead to a new sense of urgency to share that news with those in our household and well beyond. Let's 